Welcome to the Salted Podcast, where we are translating and transforming our view of politics, pop culture, and personal preference. In this episode, we continue our conversation on contemporary critical theory, specifically who has access to objective truth, the oppressor or the oppressed, and how does that shape our viewpoint of objective truth as gospel-centered people. Let's get salty. Welcome to the Salted Podcast. My name is Yon. This is Dan. And we are back and we are talking about contemporary critical theory, part number three of five. And uh, if you stick around long enough, at the end, we'll give you some vacation advice as well. It's vacation season here, so (laughs) you can look forward to that. But we're on uh, part three, contemporary critical theory. And we are kind of making a big deal about this. We're doing five parts because it is such a large topic and because it is pretty prominent in the news. And it kind of kind of covers both pop culture and politics right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of laws being passed in terms of um, disallowing or, or prohibiting the teaching of critical race theory, specifically in um, public schools. And then there's also a lot of commentary and social commentary and all the social media and all the news channels about what it is and... And it's become a bit of a seemingly partisan issue as well. So it's, it's overwhelming, you know, when we really should express that this is literally what we're going to be doing is skimming through it, yeah. right? And also, I mean, is it worth mentioning to our listeners that we don't have master's degrees and doctorate degrees in this topic, um, so we're not subject matter experts but i do have confidence that we have read enough that we can stay ahead of somebody who's interested in learning yeah if you get into the actual academics of it it's pretty robust and because we label it as as contemporary critical theory because and we referenced this in our first one first uh, episode of the series it's such a large it's such a huge thing that we we couldn't possibly understand it or articulate it in the depth that it's required uh, on an academic level. But we have done a little bit of extra research and, and we think we can kind of speak pretty coherently and clearly about how it is, how it stacks up and how we as Bible believers and gospel centered people can kind of look at it and what lens we can look at it through and translate it and transform it with the gospel. Yeah, exactly. And that's our objective is just to kind of make sense of it. And then filter it through a, a biblical worldview, and that brings really the transformation. So, Yon, it's a complex topic. Um, we're here in a series, and we've covered some ground already, and we've talked about uh, something called cr- contemporary critical theory. Yes, and we are specifically today discussing truth claims and yes. access to truth and how we um, gain access to what we would consider maybe an objective truth and um, where it can be found. Yes. And how the uh, contemporary critical theorist um, worldview would mm. actually, what lens we can see that through and yep. how that comes about. I like it. Yeah. And so currently, I mean, you can kind of, if you've, if you've listened to the last episode, you kind of remember that really the foundation of contemporary critical theory, it's kind of broken up into this, it's kind of laid on the foundation of the world is kind of broken up into oppressors and those who are being oppressed. Yeah, so all the human people groups in the world fit into two categories. Correct. Yep, and then when you get down into identity, you start realizing, well, my identity is part of a group, and then those groups are in a different levels of oppression, 
and that kind of works in the, the concept of intersectionality. And so that oppression varies uh, depending on what group you are. Um, and then this is what the, the kind of the, how it pertains to us in this truth conversation is that there is a what is described as a hegemonic discourse or a hegemonic power, which means the oppressing group, those who are in power and in control, they impose a particular set of norms, values, and expectations on the rest of society. Hmm. Okay, And then that's where we kind of get to the point where, okay, well, how does that inform the idea of objective truth and how do we actually ascertain objective truth? And this is where the contemporary critical theorist worldview kind of shows up in, well, how do I ascertain truth? And it's all built on this foundation of oppressor, oppressed, and that there is a prevailing narrative that is built to ensure that that power is maintained. And so where does this leave us in a pursuit of truth? Well, it shapes everything in the contemporary critical theorist view of access to truth because our access to truth is primarily determined by what is described as our social location. So our membership in that dominant or subordinate social group. And that either contributes to our access and perception of objective truth or it um, impedes and detracts us from having access to what is considered objective truth. And it does this in a, in a couple ways. So the first one is the idea that if you are in an, if you are in the, the dominant or the oppressor group, if you're in one of those groups, your perception of reality is in fact distorted necessarily because you are participating in this power structure. So you don't see the truth because you can't see the truth. That's right. You can't see it. And because you are, it's not in your best interest to see right. an objective truth because you are seeing the world through this lens and that lens and that application of quote unquote truth in that person's mind is just ensuring that that power structure is maintained and that you're on the top of the pyramid in the yeah. oppressor group. And that's both conscious and subconscious, right? There's a motivation there, whether you know it or not, to ignore and resist really any challenges to the supremacy of that op of that oppressive group. Yes, and that's actually really what kind of lays the foundation of access to truth, right? And this is like where we get to the the, op the opposing view that a contemporary critical theorist would say is that because there's a conscious or unconscious bias in the dominating ruling oppressor class, that means that it is only the oppressed or the ones who are lower on the pyramid who actually have access to truth because mm -hmm. that conscious and unconscious bias doesn't exist so that they can look at something objectively because there's no inherent bias to maintain a power structure in which they are the top of. So... This actually is described in a term that they use, and I know you're going to love me trying to say this, but the idea of a liberatory consciousness. Ooh, what's that? You know. Yes, it's a, the idea that because there is no inherent bias, conscious or unconscious as an oppressor, that the person who is being oppressed, the subordinate, is the only one with the opportunity to actually perceive reality appropriately and have access to objective truth so their consciousness is liberated yes they're liberated because they're not bound by the constraints of having to maintain this power structure gotcha and there's a guy named paulo freire who wrote in his in his book pedagogy of the oppressed he said he really he said it is only the oppressed who by freeing themselves can free their oppressors mm -hmm. the latter is an oppressive class can free neither others nor themselves mm -hmm. so they're so bound to this this worldview and this 
manipulation of truth or viewing quote unquote objective truth through this power lens that they are completely incapable of having themselves liberated. Is this a part of the language you own when, when someone who is quote unquote woke and then they have they're compelled to kind of uh, work uh, actively to uh, speak truth to power, to expose and criticize the oppress those who are among the oppressor group. Is is this some of the idea that their their consciousness has been liberated and now they're kind of wokely? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean it's like it's not uncommon to our idea of of, an, of being in the, having an evangelist, right? Mm. We have we believe we have the truth in the gospel and then you go and evangelize oh, yeah. people. Right. Okay. And so yeah. if you're woke, right, you're woke, you've been, you, you can see, see the, the truth. You see, you see through this lens that the, they the walls have fallen down from the, you know, that power structure, that right, hegemonic okay. discourse. Exactly. You're exactly sure. right. And so they go around and they, they can kind of proclaim objective truth um, with that liberatory consciousness that they describe. Mm. And this is kind of, again, this kind of bleeds into the next point, which is, the idea that in this discourse, right, as we are kind of feeling this out and, and pursuing truth, suddenly because it is the um, the subordinate group that has special access to truth, the only people who actually can see objective truth and reality appropriately is that the members of the dominant group now need to defer to the claims of the subordinate group. Right. So they should shut up. Right. Exactly. And they should listen. Right. right. This is what this is how it sounds in our culture. And they should learn. That's and, right. and they should allow themselves to be confronted and they should respond with openness to being criticized and confronted because they're simply being told the truth that they were unable to see until this subordinate group is revealing it to them. Or, or, or in, in, in the culture's definition, uh, a minority group or a person of color would yep. be speaking these truths. Yes, exactly. And one of the things that kind of goes awry in this dialogue in this conversation is that the dominant group members will then try to appeal to reason or objective evidence. Hmm. And they would say, well, what you're saying is inaccurate because, and here's some objective evidence. Here's some, 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 ra some rationale. Here's some technological input or some sort of rational, supposedly objective evidence. And that is actually, perceived as just using something that is that is perceived as objective such as science or rational or that kind of dialogue and it's actually an attempt to invalidate that right. person's lived experience right. so that person is just just by introducing something that's that's rational or objective they're just actually embodying everything they're saying they're doing and yes. saying you're just trying to maintain the power struggle you're totally yeah. invalidating my lived experience as someone who's on the bottom as someone who's being subjected and you need to listen to me and ignore all of those quote unquote objective things you're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. We'll get into that a little bit later about um, how evidence factors in. And so really, I mean, there's a, there's a quote that we can pull too. I mean, that kind of just summarizes this and it's this two sociologists, Margaret Anderson, Patricia Hill Collins, they wrote a book, um, race, class, and gender. And they, they write this. They said, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking. Wow, wow. One that we so will challenge you throughout this book. <laughs> I, I'm, I, already, I already want to hear that again. Yeah. The idea that objectivity okay. right, is best reached only through rational thought is a specific Western wow. and masculine way of thinking. Okay. And it's one that they will challenge throughout the book. So Western men think this way. What The, the way that they think is 
that objectivity is reached through rational thought. Yep. The, the, wow. There is objective truth, but the best way to get there is through rational thought, and they'd say that's not accurate. That's that's just from Western men. Right. Wow. And so that's just a good example of how, right, there's, an, a, there's a dominant class, and there's a, there's a subordinate class, and the imposition of something like a rational approach to objectivity is just an imposition of the power paradigm. And mm. you're just trying to keep people down. And so the the end-all, be-all is, well, if you are the subordinate, then you have special access to truth, and mm. we need to listen. And those are the people that really um, can find objectivity. Yeah, let's, let's um, you know, and this is so um, intense, right? This is... Uh, yeah, if you're listening, huh? Hey, <laughs> come up for come, come, come up up for air. air. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Have you drowned yet? Yeah. Um, so... If you're listening and you're with us still, um, we hope that there's some clarity in in our language and the way that we describe it. So, Yon, why would this be a theory that someone embraces? Or not just someone, but why are there so many schools of thought, so many people groups and kind of networks of thinkers? Why are they grabbing a hold of this? Yeah, it's, it's a good question when you think of the all the complexity that we've just described. And I think one of the first things is, is that if, if you've lived anywhere in the world, if you've just experienced life, you realize that oppression is real. Mm-hmm. And that if you are in a, if you are at the top of the pyramid or you are in a dominant position that, and there is a sinful broken world that oppressors have a desire to maintain that status quo and ensure that they maintain power because it's in their best interest. So that, so that if we could illustrate that, that's as simple as the idea that, elected officials who are incumbents desire deeply to stay in power that's to right. be reelected yeah so that's as that's as believable the idea that oppressors protect their power that's as believable as it is the idea that an elected official doesn't want to lose an election and forfeit the office and exactly yes. and and it's they are going to they're looking out for their own best interests, and even if it hurts the country and hurts other people, they're in the power, they're just in the power. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's obviously kind of something that resonates with most people, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at it, and you can say, okay, well, yeah, of course that makes sense, right? And so if somebody is uh, in power, let's say an elected official, and they're saying things, and we assume they're saying things to stay in power, it would make sense that if you're listening to what they're saying, no matter what they're saying, you're kind of like, I'm not yeah. sure I trust that. Exactly. Yep. And And... And then it kind of maybe even moves into, well, if this goes on long enough, the question then becomes, are there people who are actually aware of the world, like the, aware of what they're doing, or has it just become so unconscious mm. uh, and in their subconscious that it just kind of consumes everything and they're just doing it because they don't even know they're trying to maintain They're not right. overtly trying to sure. screw everybody else, but it's just so ingrained in That's them right. so deeply they're just doing it. Yep. Right? So so if let's do another real life example or maybe two to make sure I got this this straight. So that means that if you are if someone's listening to let's say a Bible teacher, right? And you are listening to a Bible teacher who you believe is in an oppressive they're they're an oppressor dominant group, right. a white man preacher. Right. That means that the listener can't trust what that person is saying because they are knowingly or unknowingly saying things that perpetuate their own power. That's right. And they can't... Or dominate. Exactly. And they are not actually... They wouldn't really be preaching pure objective truth because 
they're preaching through that lens of power. Right. And if right. you're the if you're in the subordinate group, then you can say, No, only I have that access to truth because right. I'm no I don't have to protect that power. That's I can right. think of it in terms of my local neighborhood too, because I don't think anybody who's been involved in youth sports would have a hard time believing that the little league all star team has a couple of kids on the team who are the coach's sons. And that the coach's sons are on the team because <laughs> they they are the coach's sons. They are the dominant class. They are the, the dominant coaches. class. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So they're so does anybody have any trouble believing that the coaches are going to do anything and everything they can to make sure that their sons play, even if there's two let's say there's two coaches and two coaches' kids. There's two better kids in the league. But the coaches are going to do what they can to keep their kid on the team. And if they play again the next year, they'll be on the team again, right? And all of their words, all of their correspondence, all of their conversations, all of their thinking are kind of clouded with their desire to um, protect their son's spots on the team. Right. right? And that's not, that's not outrageous. No. And even the point, even, even you might say, well, even if they're not doing it on purpose, they might overestimate their own son's skills because yeah. it's their own son. Right? right. And so that's the, they so will never see it. That's right. There's a conscious piece where you say, well, I, I got to get my son there. Cause I, he's got to get, it. or there's another one that says my son deserves a spot and everyone else is saying, no, he doesn't. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. I think of those parents of players that are sitting on the bench in the high school, high school coach is playing this guy and that guy and his son and his daughter and whatever else. And, and the parents in the stands are like, you know, are, is he watching the same game? Is right. she, is she watching the same yeah. sport right yeah. now? And they may, and, and that, so yeah, like you said, we, we kind of experience this idea that, yeah, of course there's people in power in little league, right? All the way up to like the, the highest echelons of power in the, in the world. And it's like, Okay, if they're in power, then inherently, either intentionally or even unintentionally, they're going to do stuff that's going to protect that power, um, and they're going to propose and apply what is perceived as truth in order right. to maintain that power. They're right? going to protect the system that put them in place. Correct. Yeah. Totally. And, okay. And so that's one of the one of the first appeals is that you know we can look around in a lived experience. I mean, ironically, the the lived experience is a big thing mm. in contemporary critical theory and so we can all uh, say well our lived experience probably validates the fact that there's oppressors and yeah. oppressors right? yeah um the second one would be maybe the um the idea that um i mean in this framework there is an elevation of my personal experiences and how i perceive and remember those pers- those experiences there's an elevation to that a lot that, that elevates it to the point where it's on par with objective truths, right? Mm. Which at which will enhance my relevance and my importance. Yeah. Yeah. So because your experience is a discovery of the truth, you are more relevant, right? And that's why I think I've, I've heard and I've come across the idea that victimhood is the most respectable platform now, right? right? If you're a victim, it's like the ultimate platform for credibility. You've been victimized. So, right. and, and so now I better understand this. It's coming from the idea that that lived experience gives somebody access to truth that is unique, exclusive, that no one else has. And now they have credibility that should be elevated beyond anybody's idea of what objective truth is. That's right. Especially it, if that objective truth is coming from the exactly, a dominant yeah. group. That's right. And so when you have, a, you might see this work out in a conversation where someone is 
describing something that's perceivably objective, like science, right? You're describing something that's scientific and someone else comes in and says, well, my truth is this. And Mm. suddenly you have now elevated your personal experience alongside what has traditionally been considered pretty objective and a scientific uh, approach to something. And so that makes me feel pretty important and it makes me uh, validates kind of that's right my own relevance in the science example you just gave how about this one i believe that sharks are friendly because i petted one one time right. at, yeah. the, at the petting zoo yep for sure and then most people would say well you know if it's a great white shark then you should probably stay away from it right but my truth that's your truth that's yeah. your lived experience and yes. that, that and, and that's like a a funny little exp- um anecdote about it but that's kind of how how it works out you know and it's a true story I live that. You live that? You pet a shark? I don't know. Maybe it was a stingray. Are you are you previewing our <laughs> Maybe it's a camping or beach house <laughs> vacation? No, okay. I'm not that clever. No. no. There's 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 some obviously we wouldn't even be covering this yon if we didn't believe sincerely that there's some problems. And yeah. with this approach to tr- to truth, discovering the truth, there's some real uh, I believe catastrophic risks and problems yeah some pretty big ones that are i mean we've been saying this kind of throughout is there's some big problems specifically because it's it's a counterfeit to the to the biblical worldview but what i mean when you think of some of the problems as approach to truth what are some of the 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 big ones you see well one big one would be that not everybody has access to objective truth that it's inaccessible to everybody Mm -hmm. and uh that somehow you become, you know, very much like a, a Gnostic. Um, your experience starts to, um, the, the more experiences that you have, you start to grow in your awareness of the truth, and there's an increasing connection to the divine because hmm. you, are, you are discovering knowledge, right, that's yeah. unique to you and your group. And, and probably I would say secondly, if contemporary critical theory succeeds in dismantling the systems of oppression and their viewpoints become the dominant hegemonic power, they instantly kind of undermine <laughs> and kind of invalidate their own beliefs. Right. Yeah. This is one of my, this is one of the, the, my favorite parts of this just yeah, in terms so, of observing it. And know? if you, so go ahead and follow it then to its logical conclusion. Yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, if you really think this through, I mean, in, in yeah, if you follow it down in time, right. When you think, well, we are going to dismantle the, the dominant power structure, right. And only the people who are subordinate have access to objective truth. But at some point there's a tipping point where the subordinate group, if you're dismantling enough, the subordinate group becomes the dominant group. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly then does that, are they no invalidate, longer able to exactly. discover the truth? Does that invalidate their right. their their claim to subjective truth? And then does the the people they just um, kind of dethroned? Do they now have mm. access to the only access to objective truth? So it's pretty, totally. it's pretty fascinating to think of how it kind of collapses. So it's another example, Yon, of maybe why it's worth reminding our listeners and really reminding ourselves in this conversation that this this is a problem. And it's, and it's really an urgent issue for Christians because of the counterfeit worldview idea that it's impossible to simultaneously believe the truth claims of our own Christian faith and critical contemporary theory. There's just a 
profoundly contrasting difference in epistemology, which is uh, how we know the truth, how we learn the truth. And this particular view is, is particularly dangerous because it undermines the function of our um, sacred text, right? The Bible, the, the, the scripture, as the final arbiter of truth, the final judge of what's true and what's not true. And, um, and of course, we know that the Bible is something that no matter what your demographic, no matter what your culture and language, you can have a Bible and, and you can read and learn. Right. And yeah. everybody has equal access right. to how God has revealed himself in right. Scripture. And so the critical theory functions as a replacement worldview. Don't forget, it, it, it does that because it answers the biggest questions of who we are and what is our fundamental problem, what's the solution to that problem, what ought we be doing, right? What's our purpose as human beings? And also how we should live. And it answers questions too of, of um, how do we fix it all? What's the solutions to some of the more difficult uh, human condition um, uh, right. the complexities of human life yeah so and so that's the kind of the basic foundations of well what does contemporary critical theory say in terms of access to truth and how do we gain access to objective truth um and so that's again part of the problem right it's a counterfeit worldview but when we obviously we're both translating and transforming uh, our view and so let's take a look at some of the biblical worldview solutions that we as jesus followers and, and gospel-centered people can do to kind of realign what are some biblical principles and uh, viewpoints that we would identify as true, right? As we, as we approach truth. Yeah. And we start with the Christian faith, which provides all human beings, every group, every category, every race, culture, tongue, and tribe answers to life's biggest questions because it's a comprehensive uh, complete worldview. And it answers life's biggest questions by objectively revealed truths. And those revealed truths are discoverable truths. And those truths answer questions with things like this. We're creatures. We're made in God's image. Uh, we've, this is how we've sinned against God. This is how we need, uh, how we need to be rescued and who's going to rescue us. Right. And, and it tells us that it, that rescue comes through the atoning big word, theological word, um, maybe another episode work of Jesus, who, by the way, is described as God's word, his revealed truth. In other words, everything that is true is revealed in its entirety in the person of Jesus and the work that Jesus did. Hmm. So his story at the beginning, the word was with God in the beginning and the word was revealed to us and the word lived among us and the word eventually made his way back up to the heavenly father. All of the truth is discovered, learned in knowing Jesus, the revealed knowledge of God comes through Jesus. And the scripture tells us who we're supposed to love, both God and neighbor, how it all resolves, uh, and ultimately how everything that's broken is renewed. All that's revealed to us in the scripture objectively, uh, and it's discoverable. Hmm. And that has pretty distinct implications for our epistemology, right? And how we come to know truth, uh, compared to contemporary critical theory. Yeah. And normally when somebody makes a claim about what is true, there, there are, that claim is typically, it's got to be supported by reason. It needs to be supported by logic. 
you come up with arguments that that endure testing and that hold up really right you test that claim against the available evidence to determine is this claim true however as i mean you put it i think as concisely as you can as it, as it, as is possible the critical theory disqualifies some evidence and truth claims based simply on who's making the claim right so the truth is not held up on its own by itself and tested with arguments and evidence to see if it holds up truth according to cct can be disqualified uh, or invalidated or undermined simply by referencing where it's coming from who it's coming from right and that's problematic and as you just said is that we believe that there are ob- objectively revealed and discoverable truths in scripture and the christian faith and that's problematic as you said if you a white male right. is making that claim yeah and obviously if you're a cct believer this podcast is reinforcing everything oh, yeah. that cct <laughs> is right and i understand that i understand sure, yeah. what the snare is and um and 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 yet at the same time um critical contemporary theory would dismiss everything that we are saying simply because I would fit the category of an oppressor group. Right. You wouldn't because you're Icelandic, but I'm French, Irish, German, English, Swedish, Welsh. You're Canadian, so I think we're a little bit yeah. lower on the chain. That's what I'm saying. Americans. So you're more trustworthy than That's I right. am in this case. But um, And as a Christian, any and all of our appeals to Scripture, you know, the listener can say, as I said before, here comes these appeals to Scripture, and obviously they can be dismissed because they're coming from someone who has um, is saying something that is obviously dismissible because they're in the oppressor group. Right. And that, I mean, that kind of is very counter to the Christian worldview and the, and the lens in which we're viewing things when it comes to objective truth, right? Right, right. And specifically, that revealed objective truth from the Scripture has the really exclusive and unique power to free humans from the oppression oppressive damage of lies right and i do a lot of counseling and it is absolutely stunning when you follow the damage that's happening to someone's life and you trace it and you follow it back it almost always gets traced back to some lie that someone believes hmm. Okay, so that's the lie. The lie, if you believe specific lies, um, those lies eventually become a bundle, a harvest of damage in someone's life. So, uh, but the revealed objective truth of the scripture has the unique power to free us from those lies. In other words, the truth replaces the lie or the counterfeit is replaced by the genuine, the authentic and and so that's why i mean there's this major dissonance between the two the theory and of course the the worldview of the christian faith yeah. so contemporary christian theory um says that when someone espouses objectivity that oppressor groups are are hiding their oppression under the guise of being objective mm. so when they say like you and i are saying now 
you know, the scripture reveals objectivity. Someone who is espousing this from the oppressor group says, I want to tell you what the scripture says. I want to teach you what the Bible says. Here's right. what the Bible says. What's the first question that comes to mind? Well, look who's saying it. Right. Look who's saying it. Of course, uh, the first question uh, is not, is this what's being said true? Is this something that can be measured and tested? And is this holding up to the arguments that someone makes against it? Instead, the question becomes, well, what what's motive does this person have yeah. in saying this? What's the incentive behind it? Staying in power, keeping someone uh, subjected to power, um, or what social or political agenda is motivating this statement? And, and so that obviously means that the oppressed group, perceived oppressed group, can receive nothing of value from someone who is even claiming the scripture, the objective truth, because of what's probably motivating that. Sure. And I think that probably, I mean, that is just really the definition of the erosion of any level of trust. I mean, because right. I'm immediately assuming that you don't have my best interest in mind. You have your own best interest in mind. And whatever you're advocating for, Yes. I'm like, well, really? I mean, what? How? what's in it for you? And that, and that's right. problematic when we're talking about objective truth when it comes to scripture and, and biblical principles and stuff. Yeah, so. so it has to bypass the question of whether or not the claim is true. Right. You don't even get to, and that's why you see these things covered in the news sometimes and you're like, uh, you know, some statement is made and then there's this outrageous reaction and you're like, is anybody talking about how specifically obvious the evidence is here or whether or not right. this is true? It, it's, it's irrelevant and... And you hear things, you know, when someone is is uh, discounting that, you might hear someone say, of course they would say that. They're just trying to maintain their power, their privilege. And right. and if somebody, you know, uh, I think I can give an example of that. You know, when you think about uh, pro-life arguments, I'm sure that you've heard this, our listeners I'm sure have heard this in some way, shape, or form. You know, when, when you think about <laughs> someone like me making the statement publicly that... Um, you know, abortion is uh, morally reprehensible. It's right. morally wrong. God has demonstrated, has revealed to us objectively through the scripture that abortion is wrong. Someone with a CCT approach to the world would say, of course you would say that. You are a man. Right. And... <laughs> You would, of course, I mean, the, the argument doesn't go like this. Uh, the logic is valid, but it's unsound. Premise one is false for the following reasons. Now, that that's not how it's argued. Right. The way that that's argued is, uh, of course, you would say that you want to control women's bodies. The motive for saying that, quote unquote, objective truth right. from God's word is that you want to you want to control somebody. Right. You wouldn't have a conversation of, I think life begins here, and I think the Bible of, says this, right? And those are rational arguments no longer, like you said, it, it's no longer, well, that's not right. It's, you can't even, you're not even qualified to say that. Right. Because, In other words, you you only consider the source. That's right. And that's how it's disqualified, you know. And, and But let's say I grab I grab my wife and, and uh, she makes the same exact argument. Uh, some premises, uh, same premises, same conclusion. Now, what's the response? Internalized oppression. Someone would say, okay, she's making the same arguments as her husband. Obviously, she's absorbed the values and the norms of the patriarchy, and she hasn't even realized it, right? right. It's internalized oppression that she owns the, um, 
the controlling, manipulative, uh, uh, quote-unquote, truths from her husband. Yeah, and they actively or consciously or subconsciously work to maintain those as well. Right, so. right. And that's important, objective or, or actively or subconsciously. Right. Right, aware of it or unaware of it. And this is a major problem, right, this approach to truth. It really is one of the most dangerous conflicts conflicts um, between them both, critical theory and Christianity, because it undermines any appeal to the authority of the Scripture. Right. Which, by the way, I might mention, the authority of the Scripture is the revelation of our worldview. Right. It's the standard of truth. Uh, we believe it's it's um, stands on its own as uh, authoritative, reliable infallible and one of the driving forces behind the reformation was the idea that our theology has to be reformed to be brought under the authority of scripture and our behavior does what we think and believe and the way we function our our orthodox uh, uh, our orthodoxy has to be submitted uh, underneath the full weight of the authority of scripture and uh, critical theory short circuits all that right it's kind of it's it's almost like you mentioned the reformation but it feels almost like back in the day with the, the Catholic Church and how a priest, there's a, there is an arbiter in between you and God and that truth, right? You don't have access to the, to, to the Bible, to Scripture, because you can't read it in its original language. You don't, have the, you don't have the experience to do it, and therefore you have to go through a priest to get access to that truth. In this way, it's you don't have access to truth. You have to go through a member of the oppressed um, people group yep. because they have the special access, and there's a, there's a mediator put in between. Right the the objective revelation of scripture um, which clearly goes against i mean the idea that christ is our mediator and our only mediator right, right. so that's good that's 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 so true and i think we can summarize this yon this way that the primary concern for people who've been, who've embraced critical theory is not to not really appealing to reason or argument or evidence or even to the scripture Instead, their primary concern is kind of it's unearthing or it's deconstructing the hidden motives of their opponents so that, according to this theory, their claims can be ignored. Right. If their claims have evidence, ignore it. If the claims have weight and value and outcomes that are consistent, ignore it. All because of who's delivering that, that truth. Yep. And I think this kind of is the, when we think of the idea that there is this, uh, there's this claim that one group is, is subjective, right? One group is subjective because it suits their own interest, right? Well, I mean, if that's the, if that's the, the framework, then we can just point the same argument back and say, well, you're only making arguments because it's in your best interest. What if we did yeah, the same thing to you, sure. right? What's in it for you? And that, if that's the place we're going to start at, it just seems like, well, where are you gonna where are you gonna get to in terms of truth? I mean, you can't have a conversation with anybody about about who Jesus is and what because everyone is just questioning everybody else's motives, and you just say, well, what's the point? I mean, just play out loud exactly, and just play out logically the, what this would look like in a home with a family with the kids saying, yeah, mom and dad, I appreciate you uh, demanding that of me, but you're only trying to protect your power, right? Right, and discounting everything mom and dad say because they're the oppressive group, the the oppressor. And uh, therefore, what? Nothing they say is true. Right. Nothing they say is, is objective. I mean, 
that that flips what we learn in the scripture completely upside down. And that's the other thing too; it flips it upside down. Right. Yeah. And that's and again, that is like kind of where we've continued to land on. It's not as though it's like, oh, okay, contemporary critical theory is just one of the things you believe. It is. It's a worldview. It's a lens in which we see the world, and specifically in this way, access to truth. And that shapes the way we have interpersonal engagements with people around truth. It is a counterfeit worldview, right? It's not just, uh, it's a little mistake here. It's a full-blown, different paradigm, counterfeit lens to the way that um, a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, biblically-principled person would view the world. It's incompatible. You know what else is incompatible? You know, while we're on the topic of incompatible, me and a specific kind of vacation. Mm, so this is our personal preferences. Yep, let's do okay. it. Let's do so, it. So keep in mind, everybody, take everything that Reverend Daniel Williams says with a grain of salt, because <laughs> what are his motivations for this? But personal preferences. How do you like your? How do you take your vacations? It's vacation season, and if you're listening to this kind of one that we just was released, we're getting into the summer. And the question we have is, you know, it's a preference, so we got to put some an A or B choice. And the question is. When you take a vacation with your family, are you going to a beach house or are you going to a campsite slash log cabin in the woods? Well, my answer actually comes through my lived experience. Oh. It's the only real, objective, true answer. And that, of course, is that every summer my wife and I take the kids on a family camping trip. We are campers. We camp in a log cabin, air-conditioned, kitchenette, microwave, electricity, air conditioner. Did I say air conditioner? Quote-unquote camping. (laughs) We are camping. And, you know, we have all the camping things in and around the resort, beautiful place that we camp at, um, the branches of Niagara. We love it. And given the opportunity to do a beach vacation, we would stick with camping and there's several reasons for that uh you know what they are mm, you don't like fun oh and sunshine <laughs> you're terrible Tans. yeah well we don't like baking in the hot sand the aluminum foil oven of a beach sweating all over ourselves wow. and um then i'm not big on cleaning uh not cleaning but <laughs> changing in and out of wet clothes i guess i don't change into wet clothes yeah probably not changing out of wet clothes um and there is something so i think beautifully reinvigorating sitting at a campfire uh being out there in in sunsets nature um with chirping birds (laughs) You're really selling it. Really. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, I don't disagree. I actually agree in terms of being around nature and seeing all sorts of like, I love it when my daughter gets to see like birds and rabbits and foxes and stuff. Um, I would probably maybe tend to agree with you. Only if I have a group of friends and stuff, I'd rather go to the beach because I'd rather go to the beach and like kick a soccer ball or play frisbee or play beach volleyball or you know go surfing or something like that. But but you know, what about ten days of vacation? Ten, yeah, ten days I could not do beach pool, beach pool, beach. Yeah, pool, but it's always a little routine. Pool. You go to the beach, then you kind of come home, you eat dinner, then you go to the little boardwalk, get some ice cream, and then you come home, play a little games. Look, yeah. if you're doing fun stuff on the beach, I'm a, I'm not a big hey, just sit on the beach and just sit. I do like the people watch, but um, yeah, I, I, I would Sand agree. Sand in my shoes and in my book. 
in my <laughs> drawers, <laughs> in my drawers. Sand in your shoes. God forbid. <laughs> You're getting eaten by ticks in the woods. That's true. That's true. There's you always just, smoke blowing in your eyeballs you around the campfire. I would like to change my answer. Yes. Good. No ticks. So which one do you prefer? Hmm. Just do them both. How about that? Find a cabin. Two vacations. On a beach. Or go to a lake. Boom. You got them both. You're welcome, America and world. Um, Thanks for joining us. We uh, Give us a like. Give us a share. Let us know how we're doing. Write us a little review. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next time for part number four, Contemporary Critical Theory. So long, everybody. Thanks so much for checking out the Salted Podcast. You can find other episodes and topics on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you click follow so you'll get notifications whenever new episodes come out. Thanks for listening.